0: Hi, welcome to episode 17 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Seidman, for a new episode where we focus on global hotspots. That takes us from Iraq to Afghanistan. We have a chat about military personnel policies at NATO and in Canada, and our featured interview is with Dr. Aisha Ray, who is an expert on South Asia. Our emerging scholar this week is Ali Wine from RAND, and Steve Spieve is on the U.S. electoral process and the primaries.
1: Stephanie, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. How are you doing as we're approaching the midterm?
1: Busy. Uh, winter is, is conference season in Ottawa. The CDI conference is next month. But uh, this week was the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's Modernization in North American Defense Conference.
0: So a lot of discussions on NORAD and the Arctic, I presume?
1: Exactly. Uh, It was a pretty high status kind of thing. They had a a bunch of uh, generals and admirals from both the United States and Canada. They had defense contractors. They had uh, senior policymakers. Jody Thomas spoke. It was a pretty good crowd and it was a very full room. And it was really interesting to hear this. And one of the things I heard sort of on one of the side conversations is that this is a conversation the government's encouraging, that they understand that they left modernization of the warning systems out of the defense review, and that is in now the mandate letter for the Minister of defense, so they understand this is a priority, but there's not money budgeted for it yet. So they understand it's a big ask to figure out how to find the money to, to renew the various warning systems, either deep in the Arctic or more satellite systems to replace them. And of course, this has a political dynamic, which is that it might remind Donald Trump that NORAD involves Canada, and <laughs> he might want he might want to ask Canada to pay something more than the usual 40%.
0: Now we're going to get another bill.
1: Yes, but I think if we can remind him that we're actually paying for American defense, that define it that way, uh, rather than him paying for Canadian defense, that might be useful. We're going to have some of the participants from this conference on the podcast in the the next couple months, so we'll be able to have our listeners uh, listen into some of the things that were discussed. I will always be happy that I stepped out of the way from that trip to the Arctic and let you go to the Arctic, what was it, 2009?
0: That's right, that was definitely over 10 years ago.
1: (laughs) Uh, Stephanie was uh, running the research center at McGill in, in Montreal the time, and there was an opportunity for one of us to go to the Arctic, and because I've always been an Arctic security skeptic. I, I think the Arctic will take care of itself mostly, and that if the Russians want to spend lots of money on the Arctic, we should let them. And Stephanie was studying the Arctic security at the time, so it made more sense for her to go, which meant that she got to eat raw seal and I got to stay warm back in Montreal all the time. How was yes. that experience?
0: It was wonderful. I enjoyed uh, the Arctic char and the narwhal that we uh, <laughs> got to aid while on range. And even though we went, it was the beginning of October, it was minus 50, and there was uh, a lot of wind. I was surprised to see that the rangers with us uh, only had their hoodies on, while I feel like I almost lost my fingers when we were doing <laughs> the, the target practice. So I was very impressed by the traditional knowledge that was shared with us while we went, and we were accompanying a class from the... Canadian Forces College too. So us academics were in the minority. I remember going Mm. with uh, folks like Andrea Sharon and and Kim Nossel.
1: Yeah, I I think that it's so hard to operate up there that the classic joke is that if the Russians seize a Canadian island, that the problem for the Canadian Forces will not be to fight them, but to rescue them.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that 90% of your time and energy is just focused on your own survival when you're in such hostile environment weather-wise. So I mean, the joke rang true while I was
1: up there. Brigadier General Carla Harding was at the conference, and she does logistics. And I want to have her on the podcast, because one of the things she discussed, which was really interesting, is that any exercise the Canadian forces do, uh, anything that the Canadian forces do in the Arctic, they have to plan out not just months, but like a year and a half ahead of time, because the supplies for the communities up there are planned out a year ahead of time, because they come up in barges over the summer. And if you show up in April to do something, and it has been planned, you're going to be consuming stuff that uh, the locals need, and you're making a big impact on those communities in a a very negative way. So I just think that the amount of thought needed to just do anything in the Arctic is tremendous compared, and and so complicated compared to what it requires to operate anyplace else, even in some place like Afghanistan.
0: And then the Arctic will also be the focus of uh, the Kingston Conference on International Security this year, which we're hosting in October. But it sounds like you had a good time at the CJI conference, and I think I wanted to ask you, since we're also in the business of organizing conferences and various events through the CDSN, what are the ingredients of a good conference? What makes a conference time well spent?
1: Well, I got to tell you, uh, it was on the top floor of the Westin, and that had amazing views of Gatineau and Ottawa. So if you get a good location like that, uh, the, the chairs were comfy and the, the food was actually really good. But in terms of the actual conference organization, I think they did a good job of having a mix. The challenge of having too many government speakers is that government speakers end up often are boring because they stick to talking points. But I think Jody Thomas, for instance, is actually very good at presenting sort of the messaging and yet still having interesting questions and presenting things in an interesting tone. For instance, I asked, as part of the Q&A, there was a mention of the Defense Procurement Agency in the election campaign platform for the liberals, and it was in the mandate letter, but we've heard nothing about it. And so I, I said, so what's the status of this? And she basically indicated that there hadn't been much movement on it, that there's a lot of ideas out there. But the way she talked about it indicated, you know, I think it's fair to say that she's not a huge fan of the concept because, you know, from a bureaucratic standpoint, it's taking authorities away from D&D and putting in some other agency. And right now, procurement in in her realm of responsibility. So I think she does a good job of of talking about these issues in a way that some other people in government, when they are asked to talk, aren't all that interesting and dynamic. They tend to stick to their talking points. So I think always having a mix of non-government people. It's not just that I like to have professors at events come up as I'm a professor and I think we're smarter than everybody else. It's not that we're smarter than everybody else. It's that, and it's not even that we're at better than other people at presenting information because I'm always jealous of, of generals and admirals and colonels who talk because they are all all very articulate. But we tend to have a lot more room, a lot more discretion to speak that makes for a more interesting conversation than people sticking to talking points. So I think a healthy mix of people from all sectors. It was interesting to see some people from the defense industry talk because, they have a very particular point of view. It's interesting to get that point of view. You don't always see that point of view. So I think, I think the key to a good conference is really focusing on getting a mix of perspectives and making sure that you're bringing people who are more comfortable at speaking, whatever mm-hmm. the topic is. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge if you're asking people you don't know, and that leads to a, a, a problem, which is that we end up inviting the same people over and over and over again. I think the, the challenges of managing having different perspectives and, and having those vary over time rather than just the usual suspects.
0: True. And ruthless moderators. That's a key one for me to keep the Q&A focused and speakers within their speaking time, especially if you're inviting academics, as you say.
1: Yes, we do have to be long-winded. And the challenge from the audience is that they often are long-winded themselves. One former staffer to the defense minister had the most interesting question, but it was a comment and it lasted for about five minutes. And that really cut into the ability for other people to ask questions. But it's also one of these things where a lot of the people in the audience are are not that uh, willing to ask questions because they work in either government or in the defense industry and they are afraid of speaking out of turn so that again you need a healthy abundance of academics in the audience to ask pesky questions or retired people i will say mm-hmm. one one thing that was good about this conference compared to previous iterations is it does seem to be the case that that the room is getting more diverse than it had been in the past it's, it still was uh, overly white but there were far more women involved both on the panels and the audience they didn't quite match the year head record where we had 50% women representation and we only had one mantle. They had a variety of models, but they also had the keystone. The key speaker was Debbie was Jody Thomas, and they did have a, a pretty good mix for most, for more the more panels than they had in the past. So I think they're doing a better job than some of these organizations have done in the past. So that was, that was good.
0: Mm. And was the chief of the defense staff there? Did you get to ask him if he's going to retire soon <laughs> as you usually do?
1: I only asked that once and uh, he was not there. He had initially been uh, on the program, uh, but he was not there. I, I do think that one of the things that, that, Jody Thomas hinted at is that the whole Iran Iraq story has captured the defense establishment this month. That that January was might have been spent on other things, but it got sucked into thinking about what's going to happen to Canadians in Iraq and with other stories like that. And I think. One of the classic things that people forget is that national capitals usually only have enough of a span for one crisis at a time. And, and I think they probably are shifting now from the, you know, being f- so focused on Iraq and Iran to the coronavirus. So I think that is a, a key challenge is that, that we're now focused on that. And that involves defense equities, defense policy. So it might be a good thing because it allows the people at the lower levels just to operate and do the stuff they got to do. But it does mean that it makes it change, to ha- makes it hard to have major changes.
0: I agree. And speaking of the news and what's been going on in Iraq and uh, elsewhere, what have you been tracking since we last spoke?
1: Well, sure. Before we get to Iraq, I just want to mention one thing for Afghanistan, which is that in Afghanistan, there was a whole bunch of ISIS fighters that were captured. And that always presents a problem because some of the ISIS fighters are not from Afghanistan. They're from other places. And in this case, there are apparently some Canadian nationals who are captured. And this repeats the problem that we've seen in Iraq and Syria where ISIS fighters get captured, and if they're of Canadian citizenship, then it poses a problem for Canada. And this presents a lot of complex legal issues that are above our pay grade, essentially. Mm. Uh, And so I do want to... Suggest people follow the Intrepid podcast run by my colleague Stephanie Carvin and my other colleague Leah West and Craig Forsese of the University of Ottawa because they've covered these issues, the legalities and the complexities of how do you bring back people, uh, both the fighters and also the women and children that went to live with the fighters who are Canadian nationals. it's hard. It's just really, really complex. And I want to throw in a, another complexity, which is uh, we now have a right wing extremist in Canada and the United States going to hang out with their, their friends in Ukraine to their learning skills on how to fight the Russians that they might bring home to, to fight Canadians and Americans. And so that, that I think we need to think a little bit about the lessons we've learned from the foreign fighter problems in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and start thinking about how that's going to end up being applied to, to these white wing extremists.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and is this a good opportunity for me to uh, plug my book called Countering Violent Extremism and Terrorism?
1: There is always uh, a good <laughs> opportunity. So tell us a little bit about your new book.
0: Yeah, so I received the, the copies last week, uh, which is always an exciting moment when you're not expecting it. And all of a sudden you get a big package of books and you're thinking, oh, the book is out. So it was an edited volume. And as you know, very often these edited volumes are put together following a workshop and indeed a couple of years ago we held a workshop at the Center for International Defense Policy and the goal of this workshop was to bring essentially two communities of people so folks like you and I who are international relations scholars and who have primarily focused on military interventions as one of the most visible response to eradicate international terrorism but there's another community of scholars who focus on more domestic level strategies that are Designed to respond to violent extremism, so we wanted to bring those two communities of scholars and practitioners together. So for me, it was a great opportunity to learn a lot about various approaches that uh, we've done in Canada and elsewhere that are more focused at the national level, and there are also community-based approaches that have been tried out. So. I, I won't go you know from chapter to chapter. I think what I, what I just want to do is to highlight one of the chapters that had probably the most lasting impact on me and that was from Tabassum Axir and she was a postdoc at uh, Queens at the time she now uh, works in Kabul in Afghanistan. Brilliant researcher and her chapter was on community-based policing strategies, especially attempts at engaging with the Muslim community in Canada and through interviews, that she conducted with Muslim men, she identifies the chilling effect of those efforts and the negative ramifications of directly or indirectly targeting certain groups. In this case, she uh, noted in her chapter how those efforts have contributed to increasing insecurity amongst Muslim communities rather than establishing trust and and cooperation. So I uh, learned a lot from the contributing authors. I think they're nice and, and short to the point. Uh, they engage with the scholarly literature, but also produce some some very uh, practical recommendations towards the end for practitioners. And there's this comparative element where we can see how Canada has fared compared to other countries.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Good plug. <laughs> for the book. I'm always impressed with how far and wide you cover the issues of Canadian defense and security. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. Speaking of your expertise, it's time to think a little bit about Iraq and uh, and NATO. Uh, The news has it that there's some discussion to have more NATO in Iraq. And it's not necessarily being driven entirely by Donald Trump, but actually by Iraqis who would like to have the Western forces stay in Iraq and continue to fight against ISIS with the idea that, If we change the name of the mission from a U.S.-led mission to a NATO mission, it'll make it more politically palatable to Iraqi politicians. So what's your take on this?
0: Yeah, last time we recorded the podcast, two weeks ago, we discussed the aftermath of Soleimani's death for Operations Iraq. And things were still very much in limbo at that time. And I'm not sure we have greater clarity now, but you're right, this this idea that NATO might take on a bigger role has emerged maybe as a compromise option and maybe an admission that the U.S. role will indeed be winding down or, or some of the responsibilities that the U.S. had will be uh, transferred over to NATO. I just wonder what a bigger role for NATO might look like. I don't know if you've given this any thought, but I can think of, you know, a couple of avenues. Uh, one would be to increase the number of sites where NATO provides training. So currently, mm-hmm. those training activities are happening in Baghdad, Taji, and Bismaya. So we could think of increasing the number of sites where that is taking place. That would require more trainers, more mm-hmm. helicopters to move those trainers and supporting personnel, and more guardian angels for force protection. So here not looking at revising NATO's mandate in Iraq, but really increasing the reach of training, uh, and that would inevitably require more troops operating under the NATO banner. I think that NATO could also think about increasing its advisory role beyond the Ministry of Defense. So they could look maybe to the Ministry of the Interior, allowing it to focus on more comprehensive security sector reform, and maybe helping the Iraqi government to think through the balance between (laughs) police and military forces throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So those two options at least entail Mm -hmm. an increased role for NATO, but consistent with its current mandate. It doesn't mean like tweaking the types of military and, and political advisory tasks that it has. The last option I could think of is to revise that mandate. So the mandate is updated on an annual basis. So if you were to revise that mandate to include other military tasks beyond training and advice, You um, might see NATO take on a more direct role in Mm. counterterrorism operations, but I don't think there's an appetite for this at the moment. And I think NATO, to that effect, in the past week, has stated that a combat role or any kind of more direct counterterrorism role was not on the table at this time. So that maybe there are other options that we can Consider under the banner of capacity building supporting counterterrorism operations, which is more consistent with the US coalition's role. Again, it all comes down to a political decision between the 29 nation states. And I'm I'm just not sure there's a whole lot of appetite to have an increased uh, troop presence in the country.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's my reaction. I think that uh, this puts the Europe in a real bind because they want the ISIS fight to continue because they've seen they, – they, they, they'd rather have the fight be there than uh, refugees being pushed more and more into their neighborhood. And they've, they've had more ISIS violence there than, than we've had in North America really. But there's also political price to be paid domestically for helping Trump when it comes to Iran, you know, this is about all about his Iran policy, and his Iran policy is widely unpopular in Europe. So it's gonna be challenging for of these countries, because if NATO makes a decision, then, and they, they want to send more troops, or even just to renew the, the missions in most of these countries, it requires the de- votes in parliament, which requires coalitions to agree to do stuff. And this may be very hard for a lot of these fragile coalitions to come to an agreement on on doing more for Donald Trump, since that does not get paid domestically. I do think that One thing that might be in between is taking the American forces that are currently there and essentially reflagging them and making them under NATO command. And so that might require some decision-making in Brussels, but it's mostly about having the Americans willing to serve under a Canadian commander, or a Danish commander, or whatever else. So that way it allows the mission to continue more or less as is, but uh, allows the Iraqi politicians to not deniability. They can declare victory that it's no longer the Americans running things, and it's now a, a multinational thing, which would have more legitimacy. But that still uh, makes things more difficult, because there may be opposition in Brussels to, to, to doing that, and it may be upsetting to the unilateralists in the American administration to do that. And so it would require convincing Trump that having to be called a NATO operation with still American troops there is the way to go. And I I don't know if he'd be willing to buy that
2: either.
0: Hmm. Well, his uh, vision for NATO me, NATO in the Middle East, his uh, brilliant uh, rebranding of the alliance was to have NATO do more. But I think he had the European partners in mind was rather than have U.S. troops do as much but under a NATO banner. But we'll see. Who knows what he really wants.
1: It would require Esper, the U.S. defense secretary, to do some mind games with Trump to convince him that, wow, under this new plan, the number of NATO troops in the region would double or whatever— In sort of sleight of hand, not really let him figure out that that's really just American troops now wearing NATO hats. He's been manipulated before, but uh, I just don't know if they're willing to play that game. Speaking of NATO, they've issued a new policy on, I want to get the acronym right, sexual exploitation and assault. Is that the the phrase?
0: Sexual exploitation and
1: abuse. And abuse, I'm sorry. This is a new acronym to me. And so this is a new stance to try to reduce or eliminate the harmful treatment of people based on, I guess, uh on sexual dynamics. So, what do you know about this? And is this something that you you uh, trained them to do? Is this what your initiative?
0: No, it's not my initiative, but it's been in preparation for some time now. Following the arrival of the Secretary General's Special Representative for Women, Peace, and Security—that's another mm-hmm. long acronym. So, her name is Claire Hutchinson, and since taking over that position, I know that she's been working on an implementation plan for the policy, and has also been working to gain the support of of different NATO stakeholders to get this uh, SEA policy out, this piece of policy that focuses explicitly on sexual exploitation and abuse. And I think that I I will define it, uh, drawing from, from the policy, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to what that means and what it applies to. And so it's really the exchange of money, goods, or other commodities and services an exchange of assistance that is due to the local population. So it's when, you know, in exchange for the assistance that NATO troops might be providing to local population, there would be an exchange of sex or other forms of exploitative behavior. That's what SEA refers to. So, it's really Mm -hmm. looking at that relationship between deployed personnel and uh, the local populations that were meant to assist. It's modeled quite closely on the UN's policy, the UN's zero tolerance approach Mm -hmm. to sexual exploitation and abuse. Mm -hmm. But this is NATO, and so the alliance calls on, on nations to provide training Uh, specific to uh, sexual exploitation and abuse. So, you know, if individual nations are sending troops on NATO missions, now they're expected to have SEA training as part of their pre-deployment packages and and their overall preparation and of course nations as always when they're deploying military personnel are are responsible for conducting investigations and to pursue disciplinary action related to sexual exploitation and abuse perpetrated by their personnel. Uh, The other notable thing uh, when reading the policy that Mm -hmm. just uh, caught my attention is that all personnel have a duty to report any incident of SEA based on uh, the current reporting mechanisms. But uh, I think that the policy could be a bit clearer on what those are, or you plugged the article I co-authored with Heidi Hart this week because you're using it in your course. But in the context of the research that I did with Heidi and the interviews that we did, it was clear that most people were not aware of what the NATO reporting mechanisms were for different types of incidents, uh, whether those are amongst personnel or between personnel and local population. The other thing that came to mind as well was how the policy refers to victims and survivors. So the policy mentions, like many policies on SEA do, that uh, victims and survivors should be treated fairly with dignity and respect. But I think Part of that means that um, they are well informed about what to do uh, if they suffer from sexual exploitation or abuse and what their recourses are. And in the UN context, you know, what we have seen repeatedly is that uh, there are a lot of barriers for local populations to disclose and report incidents uh, and when they do, you know, to see that followed up or to have reparations. So at, at Queen specifically, there's the, a researcher called Susan Bartels, who's, who's been very uh, critical of the UN in terms of its lack of a victim-centered approach when it comes to sexual exploitation and abuse. And of course, in a multinational environment, you can imagine just how difficult that is to offer victims and survivors fair and, and respectful treatment. That is it, for the policy, it's posted online, which I was happy to see. So you can see the, the content of the policy. But there's still a lot, a lot of work to be done when it comes to maybe improving the reporting mechanisms and, and just general awareness about it. And then really how to make it easier for the local population should they suffer from abuse to know what to do in that case and who to go to and how to follow up with those disclosures and reports.
1: Yeah, the, I, had, I had this class yesterday where we talked about some of these issues, not only your article, but other, other issues in this. And one of the things that came up, which just presents sort of a, a microcosm of the complexities in all of this, is this duty to report puts a real onus on, on the individuals who are not, not only the individuals who are harmed by sexual exploitation, by sexual assault, by sexual harassment all these uh problems but on those that they tell because it require it forces people who are who find out about these things to report up the chain of command or to some other authority and that makes it hard for people to confide uh if they don't want to pursue the investigation because people have found that being part of these investigations is pretty brutal and uh it it requires some people to betray their oath so doctors and and chaplains uh swear oaths of confidentiality and then they're required to report if if, a patient or a a person seeking their their amount tells them stuff that, that they're supposed to report. So uh, there's no magic solution. There's no easy way to handle this stuff. And each possible policy option has important complexities that I think still need to be ironed out. I think the Canadian forces still have this problem. There's been institutions developed to provide people alternative ways to report that are outside the chain of command. But even that often triggers investigations, which then lead to people having to deal with the fact that they, that there's an investigation and it's something they didn't want to have investigated. But I do appreciate the, that NATO is taking seriously the efforts that various other actors have, have taken because, you know, we're, we're sending these people off to do you're supposed to do good if you do peace building, to be uh, peacemaking. And if it's the peacemakers who are abusing the populations, uh, that's going to undermine the process. And it's also just simply bad to have our people hurt other people. Uh, so I think this is an important initiative. I just don't know if it's going to really reduce the problem, I guess maybe in the long term, just by having this effort that shows that countries will have a more of a responsibility to take care of these issues. Because one of these problems with these multinational war organizations is that the multinational organization has very little ability to punish uh, people. It's all up to the countries to, to punish people. So at least this is making it clear that there are standards that, that need to be respected across the alliance.
0: Yeah, ultimately NATO only has that control over, I suppose, its civilian staff within the international staff. And that would be dealt with through sort of NATO chains. But when it comes to Uniform personnel or civilian personnel that's deployed under national responsibility, but under a NATO banner, that always goes back to the nation, just in terms of investigations and uh, ultimately disciplinary action.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I learned when I was uh, doing a tour of, of uh, Bosnia in 2001, 2002. That that the UN was averaging more than one car crash a day because there are people, you know, if, if you. Destroy too much. Equipment. It was like you never wash a rental car. If you're not responsible for the vehicle, then, and you not held responsibility for anything. Then, then why drive it carefully? And so these people would break the vehicles, and the worst thing they could do is be sent home. So I, I do think that this is an important initiative, and it relates to uh, uh, something that's going on in Canada, which is there was, was a news story the past week that Canada is falling far short of its goal of hitting 25% of the force being uh, uh, women by 2026. I know that you are studying recruitment and retention and particularly problems that, that are facing women. I assume you're not terribly surprised by the lack of progress.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of military personnel issues in the news. And yeah, as it as it happens, uh, I right before Christmas, I had applied for a mines grant, a targeted engagement project to study how the Canadian Armed Forces are doing when it comes to meeting that 25% target. In fact, I was in Brussels when I first heard of this target around 2016, the CAF set out to meet that target within 10 years. And so the article that was uh, published by uh, Libertium last week uh, mentioned that right now the CAF was not recruiting more than 1,850 women per year and that it would need to recruit 3,000 women annually to meet its target. So What the Mines Project uh, is setting out to do is to evaluate some of the past recruitment efforts, uh, which has been really fun Mm -hmm. because I got to look at a lot of the recruitment ads done by other countries and, and some countries Ireland and and the UK and the US have been really good at putting out some some really nifty videos that have gone viral uh, and that have translated into a boost in recruitment and a boost in recruitment of women in particular so I've uh, just started this project in January and I'm looking to that 25% target in particular uh, with a, a team of researchers that at Queen's. And then you're right, in parallel, we're also hosting this workshop at the end of April that also looks at diversity w- within the Canadian Armed Forces, but pitches it a bit more broadly. So it's not just on recruitment and retention, and of course, it's not just on women, but uh, tries to look at, you know, what d and folks call the entire defense team's mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, diversity objective, and also uh, looking at all of the underrepresented groups, uh, not only women. I look forward to updating you on on that project, but it's exciting because for the first time since I joined Queen's, I'm not only getting to work with fellow political scientists, but I'm also working with marketing experts uh, from the business school who are better than I am, of course, at understanding consumer behavior and how individuals respond Mm to messages and cues from, from ads. And I'm also working with a comms firm uh, back in Montreal who can uh, help us in the brainstorming efforts to come up with recommendations for how to increase the interest, because you know the, the the previous studies conducted by DGMPRA or Director General on Military Personnel Research and Analysis shows that it's you know only about 13% of Canada who are uh, interested in a mili- military career, and it's not that. The rest of women are completely uninterested in, in a military career, but uh, many women just simply never considered this as a potential career path. So I think a lot of the past efforts have been focused on telling women, not only that they're welcome in the Canadian Armed Forces, but also to let them know the variety of different career paths, because there's over 80 different occupations in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so once you become a bit more aware of that, maybe it's easier to picture yourself as, as joining an organization. That is uh, for that little news tidbit. Maybe highlight some of the features we have for today. So I know that you interviewed a junior scholar for our segment or an emerging scholar.
1: Yes, I interviewed Ali Wine, who is a RAND Corporation uh, researcher. He was at KCIS last summer and and is there at KCIS's nominee for the Capstone Seminar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over the next several episodes, we'll be talking to a bunch of our Capstone scholars. These are people who presented at some conference in 2019. We were using this event in Toronto in March to highlight the best presentations across Canada and to give each organization and, they, and their big conference a, a boost beyond that weekend and that place via the seminar in at the Canadian Forces College on March 10th. There's information on the CDSN website, including how to register. The registration is free, but it's mandatory because it's on the location of uh, the Canadian Forces College, so they needed to know who's showing up. Ali Wine is one of the people we're going to be talking to over the next several weeks. And then our second interview, our feature interview is with Aisha Ray, who is one of the speakers at the Year Ahead Conference, who's an expert on South Asian security issues. So that's what we have coming up. And then we'll have My Peeve. And My Peeve will be about, yes, sorry, the American electoral process, since the Iowa mess that's happening right now speaks to larger issues about the American primary process and how Americans select their leaders, which is important for Canada because we get stuck with the American decisions.
0: Okay. And are you going to tease out something about security and defense in there? Uh,
1: elections at risk? Sure. That's a security <laughs> issue. Isn't that? Isn't that a security <laughs> issue? I think it is. Uh, right. The fact that they, the Iowans used an app that hadn't been tested and was very easy to, to hack. And also, apparently, there were Pete Buttigieg supporters who are tweeting out the pin numbers for the app so that way anybody else could get access to this information of how the various uh, rooms are voting for the different candidates. Uh-huh. I do think this is a security issue. Even if Canada managed its election last year, well, it doesn't mean that all democratic elections will be managed well. And that is, I think, a security issue, not just for them, but for us as they, their decisions impact Canada's place in the world.
0: All right, all right. Save it for the end of the podcast.
1: <laughs> Always a pleasure to talk to you, Steph. Have a, a great couple of weeks. The, the next time I will be in Japan, so we're going to have to figure out how to do that particular podcast.
0: Safe travel, Steve, and talk to you soon.
1: All right. Take care. Today we're talking with Ali Wine of the RAND Corporation. Uh, he spoke at the Kingston Conference on International Security last June and is one of the speakers for our Capstone Conference in March. On March 10th at the Canadian Forces College, we will be having eight uh, scholars and researchers discussing their events, their their presentations that they gave across Canada in 2019. The basic idea is to have an all-star team of the best presentations from the year to help share with the rest of Canada and the world some of the events that occurred, organized by our partners of the CDSN. So, Ali. Uh, reading your bio in preparation for this interview, I found out that you're a research assistant for Henry Kissinger. What was that like? It was
3: quite it was quite the experience. he's uh, he's obviously a uh, an intellectual titan, a scholarly titan, a policymaking titan. And it was a very short term, it was a very short-term uh, stint, but it was nonetheless it was uh, it was it was a, a pretty exceptional experience to to engage with and to you know to learn from someone who is one of the most formative you know figures in all of U.S. foreign policy, probably for the best past half century, if not longer.
1: Your talk last spring at, at Kingston was how this concept of great power competition is is a bad idea to think about U.S. foreign policy, right? Mm-hmm. So can you can you tell us all a little bit what you argued back in June and what you'll be presenting again, maybe with some updates in March?
3: Sure. So the I, mean, I I should begin by saying that historical context or milieu in which great power competition has gained newfound traction is is perfectly understandable. And I think that it emerges principally in response to the the failed hopes of post-Cold War triumphalism. And there was a hope in the immediate years after the Cold War that the European Union would endure as this exemplar of sort of unified, integrated, supranational, sort of post-conflict, transcendent geopolitics. There was a hope that the emergence of the internet would be a death knell of sorts for authoritarian regimes. There was a, a conviction that even if democracy and capitalism were not inexorably ascendant, that they were confidently so, and that they had scored a decisive ideological and an enduring ideological victory with the end of the Cold War. And, and we can go on and on, but a lot of those assumptions in recent years have proven to be, if
2: not, if not
3: entirely false, but, but certainly quite dubious. And so if, if you look at the Trump administration's National security strategy; it's national defense strategy, which have really placed great power competition on the map, and have and it's a construct that is that enjoys a widespread embrace across ideological lines. It argues, I think, understandably, that the United States had certain hopes about the international system uh, that would emerge after the 1990s that didn't pan out. Um, it argues that in light of China's militarization of the South China Sea and various Russian activities, whether it's its invasion of Georgia in 2008, or its invasion of Crimea uh, a few years later, that the external landscape is more complex and contested and chaotic than the United States had hoped and or believed. Uh, and it also argues rightly that the United States has spent too much of the past two decades or so preoccupied with counterterrorism. And so I, I say all of that to say that the, the convergence uh, in Washington on this concept is, is understandable. Where, but I, I would say that I have two principal at strategic level, two principal concerns about the construct. I think the, the first is in how it frames China and Russia. So Under the auspices of great power competition, both the national security strategy and the national defense strategy stipulate that China and Russia are the two principal uh, sort of focal points or or antagonists in this competition. It is true that China and Russia are both, depending on which power assets of theirs you appraise, they are both global powers. But China and Russia have very different material capacities. Uh, So China's economy, I think if you look at the latest data, is a little over eight times as large as that of Russia, and the economic gap between them is growing apace. So they are—they have different material capacities. China is a resurgent global power. I look—I think of Russia more as a, a regional opportunistic disruptor. Uh, China wants to chip away at certain aspects of the post-war order, whereas I think that Russia is much is is much more prone to reckless brinkmanship and it's looking much more intentionally to 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 weaken the the post-war order. And we can you know, we can enumerate more of those differences. But you know, the point is that when you when you group under one construct, namely great power competition, when you group under that construct two countries that have very different material capacities, very different, I think, ambitions for where they would like to be in the world, very different strategies for pursuing their ambitions, you end up not only eliding critical analytical differences, but also as a result, generating uh, problematic policies. And incidentally, even observers who are, are quite strong adherents to the construct of great power competition generally concede that the promulgation and and further embrace of this construct has played an important role in hastening an alignment between uh, China and Russia that really began in earnest uh, after the West imposed sanctions on Russia after its annexation of Crimea. So there had been some alignment, growing alignment between China and Russia, but I I think that this embrace of great power competition has hastened that alignment to the detriment of U.S. national interests. So that's one analytical slash policy concern I I have. I would say that the second broader concern I have is the, the nebulousness of the definition um, at least as presently conceptualized, if you, and, and I've, I've been doing a lot of, of reading on the topic, great power competition essentially invites the United States to participate in a competition of indefinite duration, of unspecified contours that traverses the globe and broaches every issue. And so, pretty cursory Google search will show uh, observers who argue or who exhort the United States to engage in great power competition in Latin America. Uh, central uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in the Asia-Pacific, in the Arctic—essentially every region of the world—and they speak of great power competitions contours in commensurately expansive terms. And when you ask many observers what is what are what are America's objectives in great power competition, observers will say that it's about controlling the modern levers of power. It encompasses all aspects of international relations. It's about no less than defining the the shape of world order. And so. When you have a construct, when you have a, a, a notionally competitive construct that is essentially enjoining the United States to be ubiquitous, uh, to participate in great power competition across the world on every issue, you're not so much offering coherent prescriptive guidance as you are offering an aspirational wish list of sorts. And so so, so the, the argument that I, I think I made last year and that I, I certainly will reiterate when I'm up in Canada in in March is to say, I wouldn't propose to argue that great power competition couldn't in theory be the basis for a disciplined U.S. foreign policy, but I do think that it will have to undergo a lot more analytical interrogation. And we need a leaner construct that does a few things. Number one, it needs to appreciate the limits to U.S. power. Despite the preponderance, the the singular preponderance of American power, the United States is not without its limits, strategic, fiscal, and domestic. We need a concept that is uh, unapologetic about designating regional priorities and threat priorities. And and I think that there is a a reasonable bipartisan consensus. I think it's fair to say consensus that the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific, depending on your preferred parlance, is increasingly where the center, the nerve center of world affairs will be and where the United States principally needs to be invested so we need, we need a leaner concept that designates regional priorities, that is unapologetic in saying that as we rebalance, if and as we rebalance the Asia-Pacific, we will experience a relative diminution in our heft in the Middle East. And we also need a concept of great power competition. And I'll just make two last points. One that is fiscally sustainable. To, our debt continues to grow our society is aging, and the rate of growth, despite the, I think, the judgment of many observers that our, our economy is in reasonably good shape, nonetheless, our rate of growth is, is, still, is still quite anemic. And so if you put together burgeoning debt, relatively anemic growth, uh, rapid societal aging, you have a, a pretty a pretty grim fiscal profile. And so we need a, a concept of great power competition that talks about how our engagements abroad, whether they're military engagements or otherwise, but how they will impinge on our material welfare at home. And finally, and, and arguably most importantly, we need a construct of great power competition that appreciates... Uh, public wariness of of America's role in the world. And uh, Richard Fontaine, who heads up the Center for New American Security, I I thought he had a very trenchant essay on this topic. I think he wrote it in uh, this past September uh, for Foreign Affairs' website. But he says, while the Washington foreign policy establishment is almost uniformly riveted by this notion of great power competition and and often speaks about China in existential terms, if you look at polling data, uh, one poll after another, uh, the public is really not particularly riveted by this concept. They're more worried about threats from Iran and North Korea as terrorism. They're more focused on on climate change. And and on balance, they're more focused on Domestic imperatives. I think that the American public feels that if you look at the track record of American foreign policy for the better part of the first two decades, it's a pretty disappointing story. You look at our interventions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, on and on. You look at the global financial crisis. And I think that many Americans are asking why, given the track record of U.S. foreign policy for the first two decades of this century, number one, number two, why in light of our increasingly pressing domestic imperatives, and three, why, in light of more pressing threats and priorities, would the administration ask us to participate in this indefinite Odyssey? It's a long way of saying that gray power competition, it does acknowledge, understandably, the, the, the failed triumphalism or the failed hopes of post-cold War triumphalism. It, it is correct to say that we have been preoccupied, overly preoccupied with counterterrorism. It is right to argue that we have to be more vigilant in repelling certain Chinese and Russian challenges to the post-war order. But as far as analytical and prescriptive guidance, I think it's far too expansive. Again, just to reiterate, it essentially, as presently conceptualized, is enjoining the United States to compete across the world in every domain. And I think it's telling that even some of the, again, the staunch adherents of the construct concede that it's concede its fluidity and nebulousness. And so there was an article in, I believe it was in Defense News that was published last May, in which uh, Katie Bo Williams, a correspondent, you know, spoke with some folks at the Pentagon and said, you've you've embraced this notion of great power competition. How, how do you define competition? How do you scope competition? And she, she got a lot of kind of puzzled looks and, and a lot of responses to the effect of, well, we're, we're still trying to figure that out. There's a lot of work to do to, to clarify the construct, to, to circumscribe its parameters, and to make it a more disciplined basis for U.S. engagement in the world going forward.
1: Well, that's great. I really appreciate you telling us uh, what you are going to talk about and what you have talked about. And we look forward to hearing your presentation at the C D S N Capstone Seminar in Toronto on March tenth at the Canadian Forces College from one thirty to five thirty. People can register for the event at our website
0: Dr. Aisha Ray, thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. You are an Associate Professor of Political Science at King's College in Pennsylvania. You work on security and defense issues specializing in South Asia, so I'm assuming you must travel a lot for your research, and you must go between the U.S. and South Asia, balancing teaching and research. Can I ask you, as an ice-breaking question, what your battle rhythm is like? So
4: my battle uh, rhythm is pretty intense, uh, I would have to say, and yes, uh, it uh, entails uh, a ton of traveling mostly to India which is during the summers when I try and uh, get much of my research done and then sometimes in the winter as well. And so about once, a year I do travel uh, to India and uh, of course I have family back there and so I get to visit them too and I try to kill uh, two birds with one stone uh, that way. But when I'm back I have a pretty intense uh, schedule of teaching. I teach two classes every day and then usually when I come home I have to catch up on my reading and get some some writing done and so I try and uh, set out a little bit of time for myself and of course I'm not always consistent I have to be honest. I devote or at least try to devote like 500 words uh, a day like I have a book chapter coming up that I'm working on and so I've been I've been telling myself I must write 500 words every day and I have been I have been able to do that uh, but I hope I can pull it through Uh, that makes it pretty tight my schedule and uh, I have to constantly juggle all of that the teaching the research uh, as well as of course the presentations that I do or the conferences I attend as well
0: so wait a second you teach two classes every day and you write 500 words per day well I'm not doing (laughs) that
4: I have to say I'm not doing that perfectly (laughs) but the goal is to write 500 words every day right now because I do have a deadline looming up and it's due in April and so (laughs) I I've told myself I must do it and I'm trying pretty hard to get it done
0: can you give us a, a sneak peek of what you're working on and what you're trying to get done Oh, yeah.
4: So this is actually a a book chapter on the Indian Army, and it's uh, with uh, Carnegie India, and uh, most likely they're going to have a workshop in the summer. It's an edited volume on security and, and foreign policy, I think, that they're trying to publish. And so they have a variety of different chapters, and I'm the one writing the chapter on the Indian Army, which is so broad in scope, and uh, uh, it's it's a gigantic task uh, almost, and feels very overwhelming at the moment. But April is the deadline, and mm-hmm. so I have to get it done by then. And then the workshop is probably gonna be in Delhi in May. And mm-hmm. so I am very excited about that because uh, you know I'll get to, again, network with a bunch of scholars in my field and, and uh, experts uh, Uh, there, There are some excellent experts in the field that I will probably get to meet there.
0: Well, good luck with the deadline. I uh, can so much. understand the monumental task that you've been given and <laughs> covering such a topic in uh, a chapter, which I'm sure has a word limit.
4: I had actually and- meant to keep this a secret, but <laughs> 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 I've, I've, I've spilled the beans out now and, and hopefully it's going to get done. So,
0: Oh, well, now there's a the public commitment. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I assume that with everything that's been going on in the news with regards to, to both India, but also. So right. I'm thinking about the the Kashmir situation mm-hmm. specifically. Of course, this must take you away from your normal battle rhythm, like you're working on your research, you're working on the projects that have been planned for a long time and your teaching schedule. And then you must constantly be getting calls from the media or think tanks to comment on evolving political and security situations in South Asia.
4: Right. I mean, it's pretty frequent. I've, I've had frequent interviews since this crisis began, of course. I mean, the, the conflict goes uh, for seventy mm-hmm. years back. Mm -hmm. But the shocking developments that have happened since August of last year are uh, a pretty uh, kind of precarious turn towards uh, a very dark moment, I would say, in the history of India and even uh, in in the conflict with uh, Kashmir and particularly for the people of Kashmir. And so I think this is a critical turning point, like I actually mentioned in the Year Ahead 2020 conference there, that this is a critical turning point in the crisis, in the region. I think there uh, are going to be massive ramifications for peace, stability, and even democracy in India going forward.
0: So you, you mentioned that you were a presenter at the Year Ahead Conference. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect segue. You mm-hmm. focused on the security situation in Kashmir. Right. And just for our listeners, Kashmir is a Muslim-majority territory claimed by both India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And tensions spiked last year when Jammu and Kashmir saw their special status revoked. How right. did you approach this topic for a Canadian audience that is active in the security and defense community?
4: Well, uh, I did uh, start with a brief history of the conflict, and I had to go back to, well, 1947 as sort of the watershed moment, and both for uh, India and Pakistan in the very first war. And then, you know, you had the instrument of accession, uh, which uh, was was what bound uh, Kashmir to India in in some sense. But there were a series of UN resolutions, of course, which had urged India and Pakistan to actually hold a plebiscite, but there were problems with the way the Pakistan sani military did not withdraw its troops uh, initially and so that fell apart and and then consequently successive governments in india didn't really take up that issue and so With a large majority of the population in Kashmir, of course, the plebiscite issue is is a burning one. But India, of course, claims that Kashmir is an integral part of India legally since the instrument of accession is the binding document. And so that was the kind of history that I began with Mm -hmm. and then went into the events of last year, which were uh, really stunning and uh, shocking in, in, in terms of a democracy. I mean, at least the largest democracy in the world taking a unilateral, sudden and secretive and and most importantly, an undemocratic step Mm. by revoking this very fundamental uh, provision Article 370 and 35A, that, that links Kashmir to Article 1 of the Indian Constitution. But more importantly, that is that is a very important sort of an identity for Kashmiris, just revoking that without any consultation. And not just that, imprisoning all mm-hmm. the leaders in the state. So effectively silencing everybody, detaining anyone they thought was a threat to security. And, and, and so the Indian government basically came up with a couple of reasons for doing this they said it was first they said it was counterterrorism, but there was really no terrorist threat at that moment they did it there was no immediate threat from terrorist groups and terrorist groups have been active in kashmir for a very long time but there was no immediate threat and so it was really weird you know as someone who studies security mm. i was just wondering like this doesn't make any sense at all and it still doesn't make any sense and and, and of course they continue to make that argument uh, without any basis mm. and then there was the argument that this is for integration and development and whatever it is, to do that without consulting and taking away something so important that was vital to the identity of the Kashmiris uh, is, is, is kind of preposterous. And they've continued to make the argument that, you know, there's this uh, apparent normalcy in the region, which, again, uh, is a very uh, hard pill to swallow, particularly because these leaders are imprisoned. What is the normalcy there? How can this situation mm. ever be normal? Right. Mm-hmm. And then there have been minors that have been dealing. Detained. There have been reports of abuse, harassment, torture by security forces, and and so all of that has given the actions a very ugly turn, with really some some very potentially devastating consequences that that are still not out in the open, and and we're probably going to see that happening as this unfolds.
0: And I remember at the height of this, it was really difficult to get reliable information on the ground because there was a. Bit- an information right. shutdown essentially. So how did you mm-hmm. manage to get reliable sources of information? Well, I like-
4: was of course following all the main uh, news outlets here, BBC of course, and then the New York Times and the Washington Post. And and honestly, it was the international media that was doing its job, mm-hmm. of focusing on the situation. While unfortunately, I have to say that the, that the national media in India was kind of playing along with the official government position mm-hmm. uh, or the Indian state's position, right? And then you. You had uh, all the Kashmiri journalists who have been corralled into like these small, tiny rooms uh, and pushed in without any access to the internet, and they've still been trying to get their stories out. And it's it's pretty shocking again for uh, the largest democracy in the world to treat their journalists or Kashmiri journalists in this manner, essentially preventing them from telling the story to the world. Right, and so uh, much of my information was just coming from from international outlets and some mm-hmm. Indian reporters who were. Writing for the international media.
0: And as you mentioned, this decision was unilateral, sudden, Absolutely. secretive. Would you care to venture a guess on some of the enabling factors that could have led to this particular timing of the decision?
4: Well, one of the things is that India is right now in the throes of a uh, Hindu nationalist government, right? Mm. Uh, the Modi government and the BJP party, uh, which of course, even outside of Kashmir, has been systematically hounding uh, Muslim minorities, censoring the press and and engaging in a variety of undemocratic methods. In in this case, it's particularly troubling because uh, the clampdown is is, is very, very severe. And so one of the things in their manifesto, right, which is what I was going to mention, the BJP manifesto, the Modi government's manifesto, Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, was to remove this article, right? And and, uh, there has been a trend uh, where they've been pretty vocal about creating India into a majoritarian Hindu state. And I would say we're already there by by the events that are unfolding in India it's already a majoritarian Hindu state with very little space for dissent, very little space for minorities. And I think this could be an extension of that project in Kashmir, which, of course, they wouldn't lay it out that way, but they would find other reasons to kind of justify it. But uh, it is one way to, again, uh, minimize uh, Kashmiri Muslims and, and sort of have this Homogeneous idea of India, which is a majoritarian Hindu country, right? So, mm-hmm.
0: and then the protests over the citizenship laws have also occurred.
4: Oh, Yes, a lot of unrest. Absolutely. Again, and those uh, have uh, been, they're they're, they're discriminatory. The protests have been violently kind of subdued. Students have been arrested, beaten up. Activists have been jailed. And so it's a very grim situation. I think this is a very dark time uh, in India and and it could get worse as we move along.
0: Well, I won't ask you to predict the outcome of all of this. Mm -hmm. I, I may instead ask you to share some of your other research as well on (laughs) on the topic of of India. You mentioned earlier that you were writing this chapter, but I also know uh, you mentioned to me that you did some research uh, in India on women and combat. This is a big, big topic of discussion in Canada. The Canadian Armed Forces have set out to have 25% of women in the military by 2026. And the underrepresentation of women is especially acute in the combat arms. So can I ask, what has the Indian experience been like?
4: Right. So India has a long way to and since uh, I work on defense, and actually I come from a military family as well, uh, mm. my father was uh, in the was was in the mechanized infantry. My uncle was in the mechanized infantry, and so I've grown up uh, in, a, in a military family, and I've been interested in questions of peace and conflict and war always but uh, my interest in women is, of course one comes from the feminist perspective right gender mm-hmm. integration in the armed forces where the whole world right uh, is, is almost opening up its armed forces to women but India still has a long way to go. Although I have to add that uh, it has opened up, for instance, it's uh, uh, the Air Force is is the most progressive of the Mm. three services in India. And so they have opened up positions for women fighter pilots. Mm. But in when it comes to women in combat, there are still some very traditional conceptions. And so I actually want to turn this into a book Project on South Women in South Asian militaries, right. or at least in India, because there's a tremendous amount of history and work to be done there. Uh, so I did start a, a little bit uh, of work in 2018, in the summer of 2018, when I went to Delhi and and I did some interviews and and I did speak with you know a former uh, a marshal, uh, a vice admiral, and these are women and but they were in the in the medical profession, in nursing and others, and of course they they made their way up, but mm. they had some very insightful comments uh, and obviously they think that women are equally capable of performing these duties as men. The only stumbling bo- block that I found was that India has various layers of bureaucratic hmm. obstacles in the way, right? And so they're also very secretive again, the armed forces. So there's a woman asking questions about women in combat <laughs> and women in the military and uh, why aren't there more women or what can we do about them? So they get really defensive about it. And so I did try to even access like the the current crop of cadets in the army, but I wasn't getting the clearance. So uh, I may have to try again, but I had to stop at that. However, I did ask a few or interview a few retired uh, female officers. The thing that is most problematic, I think, is, again, there are conceptions within uh, the male community or or male officers that uh, women, of course, uh, may not be fit uh, for these jobs as yet, or that they're are going to be serious problems if they were caught as prisoners of war in conflict but oh, it's almost like all these decisions again are being made by the men without giving the women you know the opportunity to decide for themselves right and so i think there are a series of different questions where it would be fascinating to see uh the perspectives but i think again culturally in, in the social environment that that south asia uh, has seen it is still a very conservative society right mm-hmm. and and for them to open up positions for women in combat might uh, i mean it at least in the in the in the army, right? Will mm. be will be a long way. I mean it, it, it's going to be a while. Also, we've seen the current chief, he's not terribly progressive individual, and, and of course, does not believe in uh, women uh, joining co- uh, combat. And so there are uh, officers at very high levels who are probably opposed to women in, in combat positions. And so I think there's a lot of work that can be done here. And and I would be happy to do it. But again, going back to the battle rhythm question, it's like, <laughs> how am I going to get all of this stuff done? And so eventually, hopefully, there will be a time when I get it done.
0: Well, I like the formula of uh, getting things done five hundred <laughs> words a day. it's yeah, <laughs> a good I good increment. <laughs>
4: Yes, yes. At least it's 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 satisfying. It's not it's not great, but I mean it's it's that satisfactory level. And and there might
0: be uh also thinking back on on women in the Indian military, there might be sources of external pressure too. I know India Mm -hmm. provides a lot of troops for Mm -hmm. UN peace operations and the UN is establishing these targets for the percentage of women in the And we've actually
4: had women in peacekeeping operations, yes. And and so has Bangladesh. I think Bangladesh has had a very fair amount of women, a large number of and peacekeeping operations. Uh, but Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, these also offer very interesting comparative cases. So if I were to do something, I'd probably devote a chapter to those countries as well. Well, I hope that
0: you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a last question, sort of sure. parting wisdom for, for our listeners, but especially our emerging scholars. You seem to have navigated different professional boundaries quite well, uh, You know, teaching and, and research as an academic, but also engaging with think tanks and the media, working Mm -hmm. with military stakeholders as well. How are you able to engage with these communities outside of academia? How do you make your research accessible?
4: well of course it took time right and so as my work got out there more and more right there were there were more invitations to call me and so I think that's that's one thing is to get your work out there right get stuff published even in 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 sort of you know even small policy briefs or or having your name out there more uh, so that uh, that recognition brings people on to the table and and gets you to attend uh, and, and get invited to places so I think I think that's that's definitely one one way of doing it. But for sure, it takes time. And I wouldn't say that I got here, got to this moment uh, very quickly. I mean, it, it, it can take a long, long time to, to kind of get there and get that exposure. But I, I just keep trying to, again, little by little, just kind of pushing to do stuff and having these uh, small objectives and then the big ones, but not looking too far ahead, trying to get the small ones done first and then
0: moving along. So excellent and saying yes to things like our year ahead conference
4: thank you so much again for your it was a fantastic it was a fantastic conference i think it was a great great conference i learned so much and and there were such fantastic presentations each and every presentation was wonderful so (laughs) yeah it was it was really a treat to go there and thank you
0: for saying yes to battle rhythm as well it was wonderful chatting with you and i hope you will be back soon
4: i will thanks stephanie
2: Today's peeve is about the American election campaign. And no, it's not about the candidates. It's about the coverage. What drives me crazy about the coverage is that the media seems to need to have a different narrative every week. And so maybe it's a good thing that the Iowa caucuses were a disaster because it kind of prevents anybody from coming out and making a distinct narrative for the week or next two weeks about who's electable, who's winning, and all the rest of it. When we talk about electability, remember... In 2007, 2008, people didn't think that somebody with the name of Barack Hussein Obama, a black man who served only in the Senate for a couple years, was seen as electable. Turns out he was mighty electable. And so we really don't know who's electable until the American people just tell us who's electable. So I'd like for the American media to focus less on electability and more on the policy issues. Of course, I'm an idealist, I guess, because I know that's not going to happen. But that's my peeve for the week. Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.